Well, good morning again. Welcome. It's so good to see you guys. I, believe it or not, don't have any announcements for you, right? I know it's weird, you guys. <laughs> we are squeezing every last ounce of summer out, right, of us all. Buckle up the next time you come in, because I'm about to hit you with lots of stuff, like newcomers, new to Brookview lunches, a partnership class. We're going to do Ignite, which is Brookview's family meeting. Um, we will start our life groups. We will start middle school group and high school group, and it's going to be awesome. Yeah, and Alicia's like, I'm already very panicked about that already very panicked. I know that the start of the school year is kind of like, are we ready to hop on the train? Uh, no, and I'm getting a lot of no, I'm not ready for this. I feel you on that. So let's just enjoy the morning this last weekend before Labor Day and the, the launch of everything as we hop on the freeway again. Um, but because I have a microphone and I can, Cameron is visiting from Haiti. That is our son. Do you want to wave to the crowd? No. He's like, seriously, mom, mom, mom. But it's his birthday today, and that's super special for us. So let's do it, everybody. Happy birthday to you. Cha-cha-cha. Happy birthday to you. All right, if you want to give Cameron some birthday blessings and wishes, fill out your online communication card. We would love to have you go online to brookviewchurch.com forward slash contact and fill that out. That is also a place for you to respond to all sorts of other things and reach out to us throughout the week. That's it. Well, to start this morning, I'm, gonna, I'm going to read the very last words from the Gospel of Luke. So this is how the story of Jesus, according to Luke, ends. And this is after the crucifixion and the resurrection. This is after Jesus has appeared to the disciples. This is after he has spent time with them, helping them understand everything. So try to, try to envision this and feel some of the emotion of this scene. Luke 24, starting with verse 50, says, When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. This is how the story of Jesus, according to Luke, ends. This is, the story ends with Jesus blessing the disciples. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. Question, what exactly is Jesus doing while he's lifting up his hands? And why did it fill the disciples with so much joy? Because before this, the disciples were a mess, 
right? They were hiding out in an upper room. They were fearing for their lives. They were not thinking about going boldly into the world. They're thinking about not trying not to get arrested and not get executed. They were terrified. They were sad. They were a mess. But after this blessing, they're still fugitives and all the same dangers are still present and yet they are filled with joy, with courage, with boldness. They're filled We're told that he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And they were never, ever the same. So what in the world was Jesus doing as he was lifting up his hands? What did he say and why did it work? What is blessing? I mean, why was it so important to Jacob and Esau? You guys know the story, right? Jacob and Esau. Why was it so important to them which one of them received their father's blessing? And why was the fatherly blessing of Isaac so important for Joseph, who had already climbed the corporate ladder all the way to the top? He was serving. He was the right-hand man to the most powerful person in the entire world. I mean, Joseph was essentially running the empire of, of Egypt. So why was the blessing of his lowly, unaccomplished father more important than all of the accomplishment he already had? And and why did God give the first priest, Aaron, a blessing to speak over the Israelite people at particular moments every year that would then be passed down to his children and their children and their children who would speak it over Israel again and again and again? These are very uh, familiar words to many of you. This is from number six. It says, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them, God says. Again, I ask, what is blessing? In our culture, the word blessing, it doesn't mean much to most people. It doesn't mean what it meant to the ancients. So what, what was tied into this concept for them? Why was it so important? Because in our culture, the word blessings, it's almost meaningless. I mean, these days, when you think about the word and how it's used in culture, most people really, when I think about how it's used, I, can, I think of like three contexts. Okay, one is when someone sneezes. <laughs> right? Another one is like social media, you know, hashtag blessed. Yeah, hashtag blessed, that kind of thing, Right? And then finally, okay, for those of any of you that are familiar with the American South, sometimes either before or after gossiping about someone, you can somehow cover over it all and make it all okay with a simple phrase, which is, bless her heart, right? So why was blessing such a big deal back then and why isn't it now? I mean, is this just some kind of like old-fashioned religious superstition? Or is it possible there's actually something to it? Uh, We've been thinking about renewed identity, our renewed identity in Christ for several weeks. We are the beloved of the Father invited to become love ourselves. And all of this is tied into this concept of blessing. So here's a map for where we're headed today. It's going to flow along three, three lines. Understanding blessing, receiving blessing, and becoming blessing. And if you're following along on your watch, the understanding blessing part is going to take the longest. And so if you're like, we're only a third of the way through, relax. (laughs) 
So let, let's start with understanding blessing. Blessing is a key concept that, that acts as a thread that is, is woven all through the fabric of Scripture. It begins on page one, and then it, it just runs all the way through. The Bible begins with God creating the world out of nothing, right? And then God blessing all the creatures of that world. The first appearance of the word is, is in Genesis 1, verse 22. This is God speaking to all creatures prior to creating humans. It says, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. So God's blessing all created life is about the multiplication of that life. God is saying, take this life that I've given you and multiply and grow it until every square inch of the earth is covered in this life. The next appearance of the same word comes after God creates people. So verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So this blessing is identical to the previous one, only it comes like with a part two, right? Rule over. God blesses humanity to receive his blessing, but also to become a blessing. That's what ruling is all about. It is not this power. And like in our, in our world, we don't like authority. We don't like, be, we don't like even the word rule, right? But this is not a power-hungry, dictatorial, oppressive sort of rule. This is an image of God, like image of the loving God sort of rule. God is saying, rule over the world by the same generosity and freedom and kindness by which I have ruled over you. So in summary, people are blessed to become a blessing. So let's store that away. That's key. We'll come back to that. Conflict then enters the story when people try to steal the gift. They try to get God's blessing, which was freely given, apart from God. The deceiver plants uh, in a lie in their imaginations, and they believe the lie. And Adam, meaning human, and Eve, meaning life, human and, and life, reach for the fruit of the tree of life, and the attempt to attain the blessing of God apart from God. And it results in blessings opposite, a curse. So the word blessing appears twice in Genesis 1, and the word curse appears twice in Genesis 3. First, God curses the serpent, the deceiver. Verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you. And it goes on. And, and there are several ramifications of this curse. One being the promise that God would one day send a human being and that this person would, quote, crush the serpent's head. Then God shifts his attention to the man. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Now God actively curses the deceiver, but to the people, God simply explains the consequences of their rebellion. The ground, the earth, okay, the whole of creation, everything that I created that was good has now been, God says, it has now been infected by a curse. And this story reveals so much to us. Uh, and one key idea is this. When we try to get God's free blessing by our own means, 
It's not his blessing that gets multiplied, but this curse. It's the multiplication then of pain and suffering and shame and isolation of hate and selfishness and fear and loneliness and ultimately death. A curse is a rejection of blessing. It's an attempt to try to earn what I've already been freely given. And we all live under the curse of sin. We have inherited it, and then we multiply it. And yet God refuses to give up on us. This is a story of Scripture. The relentlessness of God runs all through the story. So let's jump ahead to Exodus. Moses asked God to reveal his glory, and here's, here's how the story goes. It says, and he, being God, passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's pretty good. But then it says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. Now, we love the first part of this, not so much the second part, right? We, we love the God who is compassionate and gracious and loving, a God who maintains love to thousands and forgives wickedness and rebellion and sin. But, okay, so, so then what's, what's with this whole bit about God punishing kids? God punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents. What? Wait, what? I mean, this is not the character of God that's revealed to us in Jesus, right? So how does this part fit with the first part? What, what the heck, man? What does this mean? Well, we know that God doesn't just punish innocent kids. Because later, I mean, just later, Moses is establishing the laws for Israel that have been given by God. And one of them is this. Uh, Deuteronomy 24, 16. Parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. God can separate this. And then there's a famous scene with Jesus and his disciples in John 9. It says, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. Right? Like, the, why is this guy blind and cursed, Jesus? I mean, he was born this way. So how does that work? Who sinned? Was it, was it this, this man or his parents that sinned? And Jesus says, you guys are asking the wrong question. You, have, you don't get this at all. So let's be clear. We are not dealing with a child abusing God. Okay, so what's happening in the passage with Moses in Exodus 34 then? Well, there are three kind of main things that are happening in this passage, and these are really critical to understand. The first is that this curse has generational consequences. So we, we, we understand this. If your mother was an abusive alcoholic, that will impact to a degree who you become. Not in a way that you can't overcome, but definitely in a way that you can't deny. If your dad walked out on the family, you suffered for that. And it wasn't because God willed that suffering on you or because you did something wrong. It's because this curse multiplies just like blessing was meant to. And so all of us are born into families and then live with unique versions of family dysfunction and family secrets. And so the curse gets passed through generations. But also God is saying this curse runs in the family. Okay, so you and I are more susceptible to the patterns of sin that happen to run in our family. 
That's, that's not God thrashing us for our parents' sin. It's just reality. It's like a natural consequence. Could be substance abuse or could be infidelity or mismanaged anger or divorce. They tend to transfer from parent to child. Abused children are, are more likely to become abusive parents. And the same is true for alcoholism or substance abuse or anger issues or you name it. Children who are the victims of that stuff are affected. Now, maybe they don't become abusers. I mean, not everybody that's abused becomes an abuser by any stretch, but maybe they struggle with other stuff, right? They struggle with confidence, or they, they begin to isolate socially, or whatever. Sins that run in the family are not without effects. They are, um, they're not cycles that can't be broken. They absolutely can, but often the curse of dysfunction gets passed on in some way. Okay, and that leads us to the last thing. The curse has generational consequences, runs in the family, but, and this is the important part, God promises to keep working until the curse is gone. So there's two ideas that are really being held in tension here, which is why that passage with Moses feels like, like how can these things go together? God is committed to the long, slow work of eradicating the curse. Why? Because he loves us more than we can possibly imagine. What, what, what is God like and what's his plan to deal with this massive problem? Well, that's what the first part of this moment with Moses is all about. God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, right? So this is part one of the tension. The forgiveness of God is real. It's real enough to wash clean everything I've done. It's real enough to wash clean everything I will ever do. But here's where the tension kicks in. The consequences of my choices are just as real. Like if I lose my temper in an argument with my wife, and in a moment of rage I say something out of emotion, then God will forgive me for that. Like I pray and I ask his forgiveness, and he forgives me for that. But that doesn't just mend the relational breach I just created. There's still the long and slow work of repairing the brokenness that I've caused, the relational breakdown I've caused, the pain that I've brought into the world in the lives of others. So the tension is this. The tension is that God is forgiving, but sin is not. So the forgiveness of God and the collateral damage of sin, they coexist. They coexist in our lives. They coexist in the world all around us. And yet, and this is the point of Scripture, God promises to keep working, to keep healing, to keep restoring. So we we pick up this promise in the story with Abraham and Sarah. God chooses them and, and says to Abraham, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. So how does God deal with a curse that is destroying all that he loves? Well, he comes to a new couple, and he restores the original blessing. God had blessed Adam and Eve to both receive his blessing and to become a blessing to the world, but it didn't work out. So he begins with a brand new couple. He selects Abraham and Sarah, and he re-ups on the original plan. He blesses them to become a blessing. God says, it's through this family that I will send the one who defeats the deceiver and crushes his head. And this brings us to Jesus. 
Okay, so here's, here's Galatians 3. Incredible passage on this. Galatians 3, starting with verse 13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. What, what, what is Jesus doing on the cross? He's removing the curse from your life. He's taking it upon himself and then blessing your life with the blessing that he was given by God. Jesus is taking away the curse for anybody who is willing to accept it. And once again, it's a free gift. We can't go out and procure it for ourselves. And in so doing, Jesus is creating this whole new line of humanity who walks in the blessing of God, not the curse of sin. Jesus crushes the head of the serpent by releasing an unstoppable blessing in a cursed creation. Verse 14 says, He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Okay, for everybody who's not a part of Israel, for the rest of the world, through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. The blessing of God has now reached the whole world, not just the people of Israel, not just the Jews, not just these tribes. And by the Spirit, God is now blessing many so that they can become blessings. Something has begun that will not stop until the curse is gone. God blessed Adam and Eve to be a blessing. It went haywire. So God started over again with Abraham and Sarah. He blessed them to become a blessing to the whole world. And through their people came somebody we've heard of named Jesus. Now We live in a world where we're blessing and cursing they now coexist. And the guarantee of Jesus is that they will not coexist forever. One day, the curse will be removed completely forever. But for now, blessing and curse, cursing coexist. But for us to understand, like to understand and to receive and to become blessing, it's kind of helpful to understand cursing. What is cursing? Cursing is what happens when you cut somebody off on the freeway, right? <laughs> what, what is cursing? I mean, sadly, we're, we're, we're all far more familiar, actually, in our everyday lives, in practicality, we're far more familiar with cursing than we are blessing. Everybody that I know has experienced way more cursing than they have blessing. So while they coexist, we know one far better than the other. So what is cursing. Well, cursing shows up primarily in, in four ways kind of in the world. They are through wounds, through lies, through idols, and through addictions. So first, there are wounds. It shows up in the form of wounds. I've got mine and you've got yours. And this is all part of the curse of living in a broken world. So let me, uh, I'll give you an example from my life that just popped into my head this week. Um, growing up, I had a, a deep and, and really special relationship with my stepdad. So my mom and bio dad divorced when I was born, and then my mom remarried when I was a toddler. So I really, I have no memory of life pre-stepdad. And he and I were like super close. So I, I developed a love for sports in part because my stepdad, and like from here on I'll just call him dad because stepdad gets annoying. Um, I'll just call him dad. But I developed a love for sports because my dad was in it with me, okay? So he loved me, he loved sports, and this was, became a big part of how we connected. So I started trying various sports at age five, six, seven years old, and he would help me learn all of them, like soccer, basketball, baseball, 
he would kick the ball with me. He would throw the ball with me. He would shoot hoops with me. Eventually, he coached my, my youth teams in fourth grade. Um, he coached our basketball team, and, and we went undefeated. <laughs> we won the city championship. What city? Linwood. <laughs> yeah. So in the spring and summer, um, we had this thing, and he would get home from work. And I would see his car drive up our very long driveway. I'd hear the garage door open, and I would run and get my baseball glove and his. And he was an accountant, okay, at this, like, fancy place in Seattle. And so he'd come home in a suit. And I would be sitting there with the two gloves. And he would be dog-tired, right, from a long day. And he, but he would smile at me, and he would say, Hello, Jason. What you got? And, and then he'd say, he would kind of nod and say, you bet, L let me get changed. And like, I could barely wait. And so he'd come downstairs and then he'd like pat my head and we'd go out in the yard and he would squat down. And he was not a young dad. He was, he was in his late 50s at this point. So he'd squat down and I'd start pitching to him and I would throw my hardest and he would, he would hype me up. He would be like, wow, look at the heat. You know, and throw it back to me. You know, I'm like eight, right? And so I, when I was young and we first started doing this, I was pretty wild. And so, you guys, he, he, he would have bruises all over his shins. I mean, just <laughs> pounding the balls off his, his, but he never complained. So eventually I started throwing more strikes, and eventually I started throwing harder. And so he splurged, and he went out and got a catcher's mitt. And, and when he would squat, if I made that thing pop, he would just be like, wow, and he would stand up. He's like, bring in the heat, you know? And so, okay, so here's where the, the wound part comes in. One day in fourth grade, uh, my mom sat us both down, and she said, I don't want to be married anymore. So Jason and I are going to move to Muckleteo, where I teach, and we're going to get our own place. And as far as I know, my, my dad and I were getting this news at the same time. So he cried. And I just like bawled. And it was the only time that I ever remember seeing him cry. And then in the divorce settlement, in the months that followed, my mom was not getting what she wanted. She wasn't getting the finances that she was sure that she deserved. And since he was my stepdad, he had no parental rights. So she used me as leverage and wouldn't let him see me, okay? So after many months, she finally relented and allowed him to see me. So by this point, it's wintertime, it's been many months, and I had a basketball game. And he actually came. And he hadn't been to any of my games for several seasons, several months. And so I'm, you can imagine, I'm excited, I'm nervous, I'm 10 years old, and I'm trying to adjust to this new life, my new school, my new friends, my new team. And to be honest with you, it was not going well. It was all just super overwhelming. And I had, I had like no identity. Nobody at my school knew me. Um, I was just sort of a nobody. And I'd always had this reputation as being a, a good athlete, but... And it was the one thing like, that was special about me, and I could count on it. But in this new, strange place with new people, I, just, I was feeling lost. So 
having him come, it just felt like something normal was finally happening. So I had a basketball game, and my dad was going to be there. And I was just pumped because his voice, his presence, somebody that was in the gym that knew that I was good, believed in me. Because on this particular team, this coach didn't treat me very well. The team sucked. It just was like, you know, it was a really hard season in the midst of what was a really hard season. So on that night, like the rest of the season, um, I didn't play very well. So I ran to him, as kids do, um, after games. And he looked at me and said, what was that? I thought we had a pretty good basketball player. What happened to you? And so I felt the disappointment, the disapproval, the disgust. And I cannot tell you how wounded I was by that. And what's amazing is how the people who love us most are the ones who can hurt us the most. Like, even when they don't mean to. Our deepest wounds often come from the people that we love the most. And there is something about the voice of a father, right? For good or not so good, a father's voice carries a ton of weight. Now, in fairness to my dad, in retrospect, he was wounded himself, right? Like, he lost his wife and his son. He lost his little buddy, the kid that followed him around, And that night, I think he, he was just so swept up in his own pain that he lost his head. And he said something that he would have wanted to take back for years. I mean, he wasn't trying to hurt me. He's just airing out his emotions. He's trying to process what he's dealing with, his junk. But those words, given all that I was feeling, they were crushing. And it's amazing how we look to certain people, and so sometimes our deepest wounds are inflicted by those we love most. And the, the reason that I tell this story is that every single one of you knows what this is. Every one of you has been wounded again and again and again. We are far more familiar with being cursed than we are being blessed. And in this room, there are wounds being carried that I can't imagine. I share a story about my dad disapproving of how I played a basketball game. You're like, really? I know. Kind of the fortunate one. For there are wounds in this room that some of you are carrying I can't possibly imagine. Some of you have been hurt so deeply or so often or by somebody that you trusted so much. But every person in this room carries wounds. And that's a big part of the curse. Wounds haunt us. And then what happens is we can live from them, whether we want to or not, whether we mean to or not. And, and, and so that leads me to the second part of the curse, which is lies. Lies are wounds that then become origin points that we live from. We're, we're wounded, and then lies, we start believing lies that begin to shape our identity. 
the lies may be spoken directly to us by the person that's wounding us, or they may be a story that we just make up in the midst of pain and, and hurt. So if you, were, if you were abused, you can tell yourself you deserved it, that you're unlovable, that you aren't ever going to amount to anything. Or maybe you tell yourself that, that if, you just, if you just suck it up and you look put together enough, People won't know and people will respect you and they will like you and they will notice you. And so you, you tend to be pretty inauthentic and you just kind of hide. In either, either scenario, what's happening is you're living out of a lie. And that's all part of the curse. So there are wounds and lies and then idols. And idols are anything I worship to try to ease the pain of the curse. I can worship success or pleasure or wealth or possessions. I can worship the success of my kids. I can worship sex or buying new stuff or anything. Anything can become an idol. An idol is a false attempt to heal a lie, a misguided effort to find an antidote for how the lie makes me feel. And instead of looking to the Father, I end up looking to something else. I end up looking to something else, which causes me then to just multiply the curse. And that leads to the final part of the curse, which is addictions. An addiction becomes a rehearsed pattern of behavior that flows from the curse. If I worship an idol long enough, it becomes an addiction, a, a pattern of destructive behavior I can't stop. But this is the curse in full effect. This is what it is. This is what it does. It's wounds, it's lies, it's idols, and addictions. So what is blessing? Well, blessing is the thing, and this is what's beautiful. Blessing is the thing that frees us from all of this. We receive the blessing and pass it on in three ways. It's distributed, and I'll run through these, through seeing, speaking, and sacrificing. Okay, So we receive blessing first by seeing, or in the, in the case of receiving, by being seen by God. You guys ever, you ever been to a swimming pool in the summertime with lots of families and little kids? When they're with mom or dad, what do you see in here? The whole time. It's just, dad, watch this, right? Dad, watch this. Mom, watch me. Dad, watch me. Dad, dad, watch me. And then if dad's not paying attention, it's dad, 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 pay attention. Dad, watch me. What, Dad, this is awesome. Dad, watch me. You're trying to read your Bible. <laughs> You realize, I hate this kid. <laughs> so from childhood, we, we have this longing to be seen, right? We have this longing to be noticed. As children, we're, we're just explicit with it. We're just unashamed of it. We just, we just throw it out as adults. It, it, we have the same longing, right? But we learn to go after it in much more dig dignified and, and distinguished ways, hopefully. Um, can you imagine if Jen and I took the kids to the pool and I'm out swimming with the kids and I was like, Jen, watch me. <laughs> Jen, watch this. She's not paying attention. Jen, 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 watch this. You guys, I think that would actually be awesome. Now, I would never do that because I'm much too mature and distinguished for that. 
But to be honest with you, I haven't actually grown out of that feeling. Because um, here's what happens. On Sundays after church, when we're riding home, guess what I'm wondering? Hey, Jen, did you like my message? <laughs> did you think it was good? Did you notice me? Did you see me? Did you watch me? Right? We never really grow out of this. We long to be seen. And part of the way you begin to receive the blessing of God is just by allowing yourself to be seen. He sees you, and he sees what you're trying to do and all that's good in you, and he's celebrating every little good thing. Every time you grow, every time you love, every time you're generous or patient or kind or whatever, he sees you, and he's saying to you, he's like, I saw that, buddy. You're awesome. And right now, some of you, you might be walking through something super hard in your life, and, and, and it just feels like you're alone in it, and you wonder, does anybody see? Does anybody know? Does anybody care? Does it matter that I'm trying to do this right? Does it matter that I'm working really hard at this? I mean, maybe you're a single parent, and you're trying to raise kids the best you can all by yourself, or maybe you're dating, and you're, you're trying to stay pure, or maybe you're showing up for somebody or a group of people every day, and it's taking all that you have to just keep showing up and just keep showing up. And maybe you, ha- or maybe you have like dark thoughts or old patterns that you just feel pulling at you all the time, but you keep resisting them and choosing the better way. But you, you think to yourself in those quiet moments, does it matter? Does anybody see? Does anyone care? And so you need to know he sees. He cares. Like, you are seen. And to be seen by God is to be utterly transformed from the inside out if we allow it to happen. It is the one thing to understand. It's like it's one thing to understand that that God blesses in place of cursing. It is quite another thing to allow ourselves to really be seen by God, to put the fig leaves down and just be seen. Okay, so secondly, we receive blessing by speaking or hearing God speaking over us. In the Gospels, there are, there are three distinct occasions where we get to hear the Father's voice as he speaks to his son, Jesus, right? It's audible, and people hear it, and they report what they heard. It's at his baptism, the transfiguration, and at the temple. Now, surely all of the biblical revelation, like, these, like all the things that are revealed, these three must be like really important, right? The, the three times we get to eavesdrop on the conversation of the Trinity— that we get to hear the way the Father talks to the Son, certainly we would want to pay attention to the content of what's being expressed there. Yes? Yes. So here's the content of those three messages from the Father to the Son. At his baptism, you are my Son, whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. At the mountaintop during the transfiguration, this is my Son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And then at the temple, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will, conti- and will glorify it again. And so in context, you are already bringing me glory, son. Not just some future dream, but who you are right now. Now, you think that, like, if God was only going to speak audibly three times during the lifetime of Jesus and in, in that situation, he might have said some other kinds of things. You know, maybe he, he would have just come out and rebuked the religious leaders in front of everybody. That would have been awesome. 
Or maybe he would have cleared up some theological problems. You know? Is it free will or predestination? <laughs> but, but when God spoke loudly enough to his son for the whole world to hear, he only ever had one message. I love you and I'm proud of you. Like separated for a time from his son, dreaming of being reunited, the father's one phone call to his son is, I love you and I'm proud of you. And for some of you, your whole world would change if you would allow God to say that to you. The curse is living life from the lie that you are not good enough, that God will not love you until you do better, whatever better is. It's the maybe one day, but not yet. That's the lie. And the blessing is simply hearing God say to you, I love you and I am proud of you. It changes the center of your life. It changes the story you live from. It frees you. Okay, and then lastly, we receive blessing through sacrifice. When someone gives their life away for us. At the Last Supper, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. And after that, he took the cup saying, this is my blood shed for you. How do you know God loves you? How do you know God sees beauty in you? How do you know where you stand with Jesus? Because the sacrifice given for you communicates everything. You know the depths of God's love for you, the depth of what he believes you can become one day. You know the depth of the beauty he sees in you because of the depth of the sacrifice. He has given everything for you. But this is not intended to end with you. You are blessed to become a blessing. And so am I. And so how do we become a blessing? Well, the exact same way, through seeing, speaking, and sacrificing. You, you bless people by seeing them. Like you want to bless your coworker or your neighbor or you want to bless your mom or your dad or your son or your daughter or your spouse or your roommate or whoever, then here's what you do. You see them. You look at them, you pay attention to them, and you really, really see them. You take the time to notice them because that person is human, and like you, that person wants to be seen. The person is asking the same question that you are, that we all are, which is, do you see me? I talked last week about the challenge of loving those that are closest to us, those in our, our innermost circle. It is so easy to spend our lives giving our best to the people that are out there and then just kind of bring home the leftovers to the people that are our, our innermost people. So how, how do we bless those that we love most? Well, we, we see them. We notice them. We take the time to give them our undivided attention and we just continually speak over them and say to them and, and communicate to them, I see you. I see you and I think you're great. That's blessing. And then speak blessing over them. And, and we, we're all more familiar with cursing than blessing, right? So here's what you do. You want to bless somebody, find something beautiful about that person and tell them. First thing is we, we see them. The second thing is we speak to them. We tell them. We verbalize. How, how many of you ever saw the movie The Help? Does anybody remember seeing The Help? That was good. Uh, it's a real, to me at least, a moving story of like low-income black servants that are working in white homes. And there's a striking relationship between an African-American nanny 
and the little white girl that she's raising. So the nanny experiences disrespect all day, every day from white people everywhere, but she sees this one little white girl and she sees great things in her and she loves her. So every day, she grabs her and she holds her and she says the same mantra. You are smart, you are kind, and you are what? Important. That's blessing. And she speaks that truth over that little girl daily. And here's what happens. People live into what's spoken over them. They just do. There's a school in the UK that conducted this social experiment on the power of affirmation where they held a mock IQ test and then shared the results. Now, every test score that they shared was totally fabricated. They weren't actually even measuring anything. But what happened is they tracked the results, and those who were given the fake top scores, they tracked those people, and they all saw significant academic improvement. Brendan Manning writes, to affirm a person is to see the good in them that they cannot see in themselves and to repeat it despite appearances to the contrary. You have people in your world that need you to do this for them. People live into what's spoken over them. And this is a part of what makes a church an incredible vehicle for transformation. This is why watching sermons online and doing things on your own um, and just sort of have being, doing the Jesus thing in isolation is not as powerful as doing it in community. If there's a way to do it in community, you've got to do it in community. Why? Because when a community lives as brothers and sisters and it lives as family, they begin to see one another. They begin to like really see one another and they notice beauty in one another and they begin to call it out. And then something powerful happens. And here's what I will tell you guys. You guys do this so freaking well. If I was ever going to swear in a sermon, it would have been right there. <laughs> you guys do this so well. You, you see beauty in each other. Why? Because you're, you're looking. You're really seeing each other. You see beauty in each other. And then you just speak it over one another. You're like, dude, you are so gifted at gathering people. Like, I'm not, but you do. And it's such a blessing. It's such a gift. Or you're like, oh, man, you, you are so good with kids. Or, or you're like, oh, man, you're such a great teacher or communicator or whatever it is. You guys do this with, with each other, and you do it with me. And, and then we all begin to live into it more and more. And it's just the same idea. You are smart, you're kind, and you're important. And, and finally... You, you bless someone when you sacrifice for them, right? So if you want to bless someone in your life, you see them, you speak over them, and you sacrifice for them. You sacrifice time, you sacrifice energy, you sacrifice finances, you sacrifice whatever it is that you have. You give yourself away for them. God is blessing you so that you can become a blessing. And you guys, this is how heaven invades earth. This is how the curse is reversed. What, what came in Jesus is being passed on to you and me, and then the way this is supposed to work is it's supposed to go through us to the rest of the world. That's a blessing. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. 
Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Yeah, they did. So I want to invite the worship team to come back up. And we're going to take communion together. And um, the way that this will work is they're going to do music here for the next 20, 25 minutes. And I just want you to spend time thinking about the reality that this bread represents Jesus' body broken for you and the juice represents his blood shed for you. What does that mean? It means he loves you that much. It means he sees that kind of beauty in you. It means that he would communicate as often as you can receive it. I love you and I'm proud of you and I'm doing something in your life. And so as we come this morning, you can come up front at any time you're ready and you can take it back to your seat. You can kneel here and spend some time in solid, like just some reflection. We also have some in the back, which, which includes a gluten-free option if any of you guys need that. Um, but I, wanna, I just want to invite you to stand right now and to bow your head. And I just want to speak truth over you. You are, you are loved by God. You are loved by your Father. He sees you. And if you're struggling and you're wrestling to do what's right and it's hard, he sees you and he's saying, I see it. Great job, buddy. I see it. Keep going. And if you're in a spot where you just feel like you're not enough, God is saying, I see beauty in you that you cannot imagine and I will cultivate it in you if you allow me. There is beauty in you, there is strength in you, there is courage in you, there's goodness in you, and he will not stop until it is awakened fully in you. Your future is a, is a future of being embraced by a father who says, well done, good and faithful servant. Welcome, welcome home. And your future is one of joy and gladness beyond imagining. That's what's true of you. Praise Jesus.